and Philemon. Then there are those letters that scholars debate. We call them the disputed letters or pseudepigrapha, false writings attributed to Paul. These are written in Pauline form and language, but address the concerns of a later church. They are Ephesians, Colossians, and 2 Thessalonians. Finally, we have Acts of the Apostles, written by the author of the Gospel of Luke, some 20 or 30 years after Paul. Taken together, the genuine letters of Paul, those allegedly written by a second generation of a Pauline community, and Acts of the Apostles provide a surprisingly full picture. Marion Swords, in his book, The Apostle Paul, paints the following portrait. The Apostle to the Gentiles, first, had two names, Paul, a Greek name, and Saul, a Jewish one. He was born in Tarsus in southeastern Asia Minor. Paul came from a Jewish family of Pharisees of the tribe of Benjamin and was named for King Saul, their most famous member. His writings evidence that he was educated in Hellenistic philosophy and rabbinic methods. Well, what will become rabbinic methods. At one point, he was a resident of Damascus. By Paul's own admission, he was a persecutor of the early Christian movement and became a Christian through a dramatic revelation of Jesus Christ. His first years as a Christian in Arabia are a mystery. But three years after his call, Paul went to Jerusalem to visit. He saw Peter and James. Fourteen years later, he returned for what we read in the Acts of the Apostles as the Jerusalem Conference. He traveled extensively preaching. We know that on the mission field, he worked with a team, supported himself, he was often in danger or abused, suffered from a personal problem or injury. He was taking up a collection for the poor of Jerusalem in order to bring the Gentiles and Jewish Christians closer together. He wrote to churches while in other areas to address problems. His self-perception was that he was the apostle of Jesus Christ sent to the Gentiles. And finally, we know he was presumably imprisoned in Rome and dies a martyr. This is what we can know from the New Testament texts. We have no other ancient Greco-Roman or Jewish text in which Paul of Tarsus is mentioned. It would seem the one who would lay the initial foundation of the Gentile church made little or no impact on the pagan and Jewish writers of his day. Not so the communities who found it. And so we turn to Philippians. A valuable way to study Paul's letter to the Philippians is to work through it chapter by chapter. But I'd like to suggest a little different approach, one that we in biblical studies and theology understand as a contextual approach, recognizing that an ancient letter has a history, comes out of a specific context, and is best understood in its original sense when we know how the first readers heard it. An example I often give my students, now don't laugh, is the use of the word groovy. If my grandmother were to use the term, she was probably speaking about an object that had grooves or indentations in it. Let's say the grooves in an old LP album, better known 
as a record. If my mom used the term, she may have meant it as a positive affirmation. That was a groovy song. She didn't mean the record had grooves in it, but rather that the song itself was enjoyable. When I ask my students what word they would use today, they offer cool, rad, bad, and my personal favorite, fat, with a ph. If in just a few decades our vocabulary has changed, imagine looking back 2,000 years. Attending to the content, context, and culture of the letter allows us to place it in its original setting and better understand what Paul may have meant and how his words may have been heard. I envision the following for our nine sessions. First, we'll review generally the content of the